0: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And today we're talking about women in electronic music. And it was super difficult to put these notes together and sort of come up with talking points because this is not exactly like a one and done topic. Women have been involved in electronic music from the get-go, so way back in the 19th century all the way up through today as DJs, as composers, as people who are building and constructing instruments and devices that make all of those fabulous beeps and boops that you hear <laughs> in electronic music to totally sound like a noob. Um But yeah, so this is Women in Music Week, and we're super excited to get started talking about something that, frankly, I personally didn't have a lot of familiarity with before we started looking into it. I am much more of like a... An Otis Redding channel on Spotify person than an electronic music person, but more a Luddite music fan. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, even then, electronic music infiltrates so many different types of music that it's hard to pin it down as just one thing. And I want to go ahead and offer a disclaimer to our listeners that there's so much great information out there that we couldn't hit at all. I mean, we're, we're definitely trying to focus on the pioneers, women in electronic music who were really blazing a trail, in addition to some of the gender issues that are being talked about today. And so without further ado, let's jump into what electronic music
0: is for people who are like, Ugh, I'm not sure. Well, it is what it sounds like. It's music created with electronic equipment, things like Computers and synthesizers.
1: Right, and so you might think and you might dismiss electronic music as being something that's like, ugh, that's not real music. There's nothing to it. You just hit some dials on a synthesizer. But that's an attitude that Bjork, who's a pretty mainstream electronic artist at this point, took issue with back in 1997 in an interview. She said, I find it so amazing when people tell me that electronic music has not got soul and they blame the computers. They get their finger and they point at the computers like there's no soul. Soul here, And it's like, you can't blame the computer. If there's not soul in the music, it's because nobody put it there. And it's not the tool's fault. And so it's interesting to see how, as electronic music has evolved from way back in the 19th century to today, how people have tried to sort of create... Music that is free of the traditional constraints, whether of the
0: instrumentation itself or just the way we think about music in general. Well, speaking of constraints, though, when we look at electronic music today and how it's critiqued, uh, women are still a lot of times put in boxes. Oh, you're a female DJ or you're a female electronic music artist. And Molly Wells of Funerals takes issue with this, saying woman is not a genre stop acting like we're a passing fad. And I don't know if Molly Wells would hear us talking about the history of women in electronic music and say the same thing all over again, but we are hopefully going to back up her statement that, hey, we're not some specialty act. We've been here the whole time.
1: So let's give you some quick origins of electronic music and where it came from. Um, it goes back to the late 19th and early 20th centuries. You have some pretty smart folks, people like Hermann von Helmholtz and Ferruccio Busoni, who start publishing books encouraging people to explore the science of sound and the possibility of creating new tones altogether. Others take this idea and a passion for music and sound and start creating some pretty crazy instruments.
0: So in 1897, for instance, you have Thaddeus Cahill, who patents the telharmonium, also known as the dynamophone, which was the first significant electronic music instrument. And he didn't complete it until 1907. And this thing was massive. It weighed 200 tons, measured 60 feet long, and it it was a 36 note per octave keyboard and was a type of additive synthesizer, likely a term coined by Cahill. So this guy was pretty much a genius. And you could only hear it though by sending the voltage output over the telephone network to paying subscribers. And, I mean, when I say this thing is massive, it was, it looked like a huge organ on steroids, like a robot organ taking over a room. And for all of that size, yeah, I could make a little bit of music. <laughs>
1: but yeah, you you, know? you had to be one of like the cool early adopter insiders who knew when to pick up the phone, I guess, to listen to it. And then, I mean, who has the time? What are you doing while you're sitting there listening to it? Like, you've got to
0: sit on the phone. Well, it's 18... Well, I guess by this point, what, 1907? What else are you going to do? Yeah, that's right. It's true. You know? Uh, well, in
1: 1919, CIA nemesis and Soviet spy Leon Theremin invents... The Harp. The, the theremin, uh, which is basically a box with two antenna and you wave your hands next to them to control pitch and volume and he ended up patenting it in 1928. My first theremin experience, I saw somebody performing it and was like, what? It's, it's, it's black magic. It's magic! Um But also, during this time of development and experimentation in the 1920s, you've got Jörg Major who develops the Sparophone, which could deliver microtonal and quarter-tone scales. Basically, he wanted to liberate music from its fixed scale on the piano. And during this time, you know, a lot of people are responding to cultural shifts. It's not surprising that when things happen in society and in, in culture, people in the arts will respond to it. And so if you look to Russia after the Bolshevik Revolution, there were radical new types of music and electronic instruments emerging as part of this utopian movement inspired by futurism and anarchistic ideas. You've just basically got a lot of people around this time being like, down
0: with the tyranny of the piano and hooray for scientific culture. But not everybody was on board with this newfangled electronic music In the 1930s, for instance, the Nazis were initially like, yeah, thumbs up, electronic music. But then (laughs) they labeled it experimental and thought electronic music was degenerate and un-German. And meanwhile, the Bolsheviks started killing the anarchists. So, I mean, actually, that kind of makes electronic music a lot cooler if the Bolsheviks and uh, the Nazis were against it. If they were, like, totally for electronic music... (laughs) I might feel a little more conflicted about um my beeps and boops.
1: Right, all your beeps and boops. Well, beyond just the political speed bumps that electronic music hit, there was also sort of the global shrug of people wanting instruments that could simulate the sound of
0: regular instruments. Yeah, that's the fun of playing a keyboard today. Yeah. Like, I can't play the bassoon. Oh, wait, yes, I can. Honk. <laughs> I know Kristen's constantly
1: walking around in here with her bassoon guitar, just like hitting notes, it's getting really old. Um but if we jump forward to the nineteen sixties and seventies This is the space age. This is the Cold War. Serious interest starts redeveloping in electronic music. This is also the era where we start getting a lot of electronic music studios. I mean, how else, Kristen, are you going to make all of the laser gun sounds
0: that accompany all of your space age movies? Uh, Well, a lot of that technology, Caroline, the space age stuff, is thanks to links between electronic music equipment and equipment developed for military purposes. And so you have things like broadcast radio, amplification and recording technology, vocoders, which is a combo of voice encoding and encryption technology that would end up in uh, early hip-hop. So that's laying the groundwork for these kinds of instruments being developed in the 60s and 70s. And also a reason why women might not have been as visible or participatory in building these earliest instruments.
1: Yeah, that's one thing that I found in all of this research was that there are so many guys out there building and constructing and inventing these uh, electronic doodads, but not as many women. They tended to be more performers. But if you look in 1852 at Ada Lovelace, she of first computer programmer fame, she did note that Charles Babbage's analytical engine might actually be able to compose some sort of elaborate or scientific piece of music. So the idea was there. She just wasn't the one implementing it.
0: Yeah, and she kicks off a fantastic timeline of women in electronic music over at the Vinyl Factory and is followed up in 1887 by Dot D'Alcorn, who was half of, get this, a Victorian electro-musical act and was likely the earliest professional female performer of an electrical musical instrument in... In the UK, and she performed this song while in tux in a top hat, by the way, called Clickety Clack, which featured electric castanets and clickety clack. It is about as uh, musically complex as the song called "Clickety Clack." You know, sounds like (laughs) so not
1: exactly what we would consider cutting edge in electronic music today. But back then, having electrified castanets playing along as you plunked on the on the keys on your
0: piano. It's pretty new wave. Yeah, so Dot was super new wave, but not perhaps as new wave as theremin superstar Clara Rockmore, who came about in the early 1930s. And she was a classically trained Lithuanian musician with perfect pitch and perhaps the world's first electronic music star. Yeah, so Rockmore picked up the theremin after a
1: health condition made it hard for her to continue playing the violin. And she even came up with a specific finger technique to play the instrument more precisely. Uh, and if you look at pictures of her, she looks so sublime, just like... like She's holding her arms up like,
0: what am I going to make for dinner? To me, she looks a little bit like uh, Morticia from the Addams Family with an updo playing the theremin she's very otherworldly
1: yeah the thing is she's picking up this instrument not too long after leon theremin himself patented it and she kind of became his muse during this time she so impressed him with her abilities and her technique that he ended up giving her an rca model theremin as a gift and she even inspired him in turn to improve the design and, you know, she's so talented and so morticia that he can't help himself but be spitten. And so he does propose marriage, I believe, more than once. And she declined. She ended up marrying some other guy. But they stayed super close for the rest of their lives, even after, you know, he got, like, taken out of the country and then came back and taken out again. But whatever. And it's great to get Rockmore's perspective on the instrument and playing it. Uh, in a 1977 interview with synthesizer pioneer Bob Moog, she talks about electronic instruments. And she says that people think of them as something that are new, eerie, strange, ugly, strident sounds. She says, now that is completely the opposite of my approach. I am a violinist and a musician. I wanted to see if it were possible to use the theremin to make real music. Bach couldn't write for the theremin when he was alive, but there's no reason why I can't play Bach on the theremin today. And I think it's awesome that she uses the example of Bach because Bach will resurface in our electronic music conversation a little bit later. But the theremin actually sort of realizes those early scientific men's desires to free themselves from the tyranny of the piano. As Rockmore puts it, there is a certain terrific freedom. You feel like a conductor in front of an orchestra. There is no instrument between you and the music.
0: Well, and speaking of the music, moving on in our timeline in 1938, Joanna Bayer becomes the first woman to compose a work scored for electronic instruments. It's called The Music of the Spheres, and it's very avant-garde. That's the thing with a lot of this early electronic music, listening to it, it's either avant-garde, as I just said, or very... Sci fi sounding. Yeah. Lots of woo. <laughs> like there should be aliens. Yeah. Speaking of which, 1956.
1: Yeah. B.B. Barron, along with her husband Lewis, created the first electronic film score for Forbidden Planet. And this sort of starts, this Forbidden Planet score kind of is one of the very first dominoes to fall in the pre-modern uh, electronic music era because in 1958 we get electronic heavy hitter Daphne Oram who co-founds the BBC's Radiophonic Workshop becoming the first woman to direct an electronic music studio. She was also among the first to experiment with musique concrète or basically the technique of recording raw sounds out in the environment and using that as material to then create electronic music with. So using a key, at, you know, scraping against metal as sort of sound effect and then weaving that into your composition. And so a year later in 1959, Oram becomes the first woman to set up a personal studio, the Oramic Studio for Electronic Composition. There, she creates basically electronic background music for theater, radio, TV, short films, and even exhibits. Things that we would call sonic environments. And she eventually did compose electronic pieces for feature films, concerts, and even a ballet. And it's
0: notable to see what sparked her interest. When she was a kid, she played piano, so there you have that. But... Her electrical engineer brother also helped her to build radio transmitters and receivers, and you put that together, and you have her getting her start as a BBC music balancer and studio engineer, a job that only opened to women when men left to fight in World War II. And when she gets there, she starts experimenting with synthetic sound in 1948 after becoming interested in the cathode ray oscilloscope, which was used to display the characteristics of sound waves graphically. And genius that Daphne is, she thinks, huh, I wonder if I can reverse this process. And... She figures it out. In 1962, she becomes the first woman to to design and build an electronic music instrument with help called the Oramix System. And essentially, it's an early sequencer. So it was a machine that interpreted the composer's drawn musical instructions. So shape was used to tell the machine how things like pitch, vibrato and volume come out. So she did it. She reversed the oscilloscope. But this, of course, was after when she was younger,
1: she had asked someone at the studio, like, hey, if I do this in reverse, will it read what, I, what I'm what i doing? And I imagine she trailed off as she got a blank stare from the man who then just said no. And the source that we were reading was like, well, yeah, I'm just took that as a challenge and was like, okay, fine. Well, I'm smarter than you, so I'm going to do this. Um But in 1963, her contemporary... Composer and arranger Delia Derbyshire, who's basically like a cult star of early electronic music was also working in the BBC's Radiophonic Workshop, creates the theme for Doctor Who, one of the first theme songs to be produced totally electronically. And so she takes this guy, Rob Grainer's score that he had written, to become the theme song, and without the aid of synthesizers, just using oscillators and other little bits and bobs of what eventually would be part of an actual synthesizer, creates this incredible, almost... Sonic experience and Grainer when he heard it was like, did I, did I write that? And she's like, well, no, not really. Uh, I did half of it and so you owe me half of the royalties for this theme song, which she was denied.
0: Yeah, that was part of the radiophonic workshops rules where really only the, the main composer got any royalties to which hardcore Doctor Who fans today cry foul. Doctor Who fans love Delia Derbyshire and she also though not surprisingly had a background much like Daphne Orham in music and math from college and she went on to have an incredibly full and creative career even working with Paul McCartney and she was also in demand among bands who were interested in synthesizers and just quickly I wanted to note that while she was working with BBC's radiophonic workshop, there was this uh, soundscape that she did for a documentary that took place in the Sahara Desert. And she used this green lampshade that when she struck it, it made a pure frequency. She used it and then broke down the various sounds from it and then rebuilt them to create the background for these camels running through the desert. And that green lampshade is now really an icon Mm -hmm. in the history of electronic music listed, for instance, in the BBC's four sound effects that made TV history. Whenever you read about Delia Derbyshire, you always read about that green lampshade. Yeah. And she also talks about how she
1: used her own voice, essentially breaking it down into parts for the sound effect of the camel's Running their Mm -hmm. hooves. And so, I mean, she, that, that documentary is totally cited as a huge moment in electronic music. But the game changer in all of this is Wendy Carlos. She's a composer, an instrument builder. And a reluctant performer. She's way more into the whole behind-the-scenes creation aspect. And her Switched On Bach album, which was released in 1968, is basically seen as the turning point, where electronic music becomes a thing and the mainstream takes notice.
0: Yeah, it went platinum and won three Grammys in 1970. And so not only is electronic music getting this mainstream recognition for the first time, it also encourages a lot of other people to start creating music with synthesizers. And Switched On Bach is essentially a reimagining of... Bach, <laughs> using a Moog synthesizer, because after all, she'd helped Moog develop it and was an early adopter. But when you talk to Wendy Carlos about this, she's a little eye about it. She says, quote, listeners thought that the synthesizer itself, the Moog synthesizer, was a real musical instrument when all it really was... Was just a collection of fairly limited sounds extrapolated from what had been available in the 50s, put together in one extremely nice package with a nice, consistent interface and a keyboard that could supply voltages and triggers so you could play notes. But you still used it, Wendy, to create this hit record.
1: Well, oh, I love that she she so she gives this entire description that sounds like holy crap, that's a lot of stuff, but she's like, and that was about it. Because she goes on to say, like, she she hates being almost pigeonholed as just the switched-on Bach person. Like, that's just the lady who did switched-on Bach. She's like, I don't ask you about things that you did in the 70s. Like, I've grown and changed since then. You can't just put me into a Bach box. A Bach box. But she basically was saying, like, yes, I used it, and I did something new with it and different with it in terms of the Moog synthesizer, but she's like, That's just because that's what was there at the time. If there had been something more advanced, I would have used that. But I kind of used what was available to me. And she should know. I mean, this woman has a background in both physics and music, which is a theme. in just about everybody we've looked at so far, she talks about how she actually did try to go into physics first, but her grades kind of weren't up to snuff. And she says, part of my whole personality is really much more that of a person who would work in the sciences. I don't find very much disparity between the sciences and music. And so this, this whole field, this career that she ended up with is just a continuation of how when she was a kid, she kind of grew up tinkering with things and inventing things and putting things together. And that grew into this amazing, like, genius
0: career as an electronic composer and inventor that we see today. And if you haven't heard Switched on Bach, maybe you've seen Clockwork Orange, the 1971 Kubrick film that haunted my high school experience. (laughs) And the soundtrack, which Carlos composed, adds so much to that film. Like, you take the two apart And it's not as eerie and as powerful of a film as it is. And the New York Times at the time hailed it as a giant step past the banalities of most contemporary film tracks. And then in 1982, she also did the
1: score for Tron. People, I mean, she's like, she's got a lot of stuff out there beyond just the Switch on box stuff that people really kind of culturally identify with. And another thing that makes her such a fascinating character is that in 1979, she came out as trans and she had been living as a woman since 10 years before that. Um, but she gave this fascinating Playboy interview, which is such an interesting time capsule about how people used to think and talk about trans people. But Wendy Carlos, like, in that interview, she says things that we're so familiar with nowadays in terms of, I wish people would say trans or transgender instead of transsexual. And then the whole idea of, listen, I've always known I was a girl, that I was a
0: woman, and it just took other
1: people a minute to catch up.
0: Yeah, at one point the interviewer asks her about the operation yeah at one point the interview asked her about whether she had any castration fear going into her operation and she was enraged by the suggestion of that she was like no this wasn't a removal this was a corrective surgery for me Um, but she was also though followed by other prominent women in electronic music like Ann Peacock who was big on synthesized vocals Elyon Radigue, who used synthesizers to create meditative sounds. Which sounds so nice. And then Suzanne Ciani, who supplied sound effects for Star Wars! What? Yeah, so a lot of women. Uh,
1: are working in this whole film scoring industry. People are creating lots of incredible sound effects and uh, scores that you're probably familiar with. Um, you also have people like Lori Spiegel, who created an algorithmic composition software for Mac, Atari, and Amiga. And Lori Anderson, who is a composer and performer, and who also built her own instruments. She ended up having hits in the 1980s, became Lou Reed's wife. Um, but it's, it's It's incredible to realize that we just haven't, as people who are kind of outside the electronic music realm, we just aren't exposed to these incredible women and their contributions to to music, to electronica, to soundtracks. Um, But there are so many names out there, and I just wish that we had more time to talk about them.
0: Well, now that we have offered at least a brief history of women in electronic music, let's fast forward and look at... Women in electronic music today, because the landscape has definitely changed, but some things remain the same. Yeah, so today's electronic music industry is huge. This
1: is coming from an April 2015 Billboard article that said that the electronic music industry just in North America is worth about $1.9 billion. Globally, it's about $6.2 billion. And they were talking about a report that analyzed revenue from things like music sales and streaming, from festivals and clubs and things like that. And in 2014, apparently dance track sales hit an all-time high.
0: So... Where are the women in all that? What's what's the equation? Well, when it comes to live performances, like if you go to, for instance, Tomorrow World, you aren't going to see a ton of women on stage. Uh, Female Pressure, that we mentioned at the top of the podcast, looked into women's representation and surveyed 21 music labels and 43 festivals, which, admittedly, small sample size. uh, But they found that women represented just five And 8.4% of artists, respectively, and then even if you include, though, mixed male-female groups, the numbers don't change all that much. In fact, uh, the number of festival acts drops to 7.7%.
1: And so, when you look at sort of the role that women play in electronic music today, and, and their visibility and their participation, um, the general theme that we found in, in researching and reading blogs and, and posts, like posts talking about this issue. The general theme tends to be that, yes, we need more women participating. We need more visibility for women. We want to hear more from women. Um, but also, don't just focus on my gender. Focus on the fact that I'm an incredibly talented person who's been working hard at this career for a long time. And we looked at uh, Pink Noises from Tara Rogers, which is both a book and a blog. And Rogers mentions the scholarship that's been done around the topic of women in Electronic music, but she really takes issue with how so much of it, quote, gives the impression that women are rarely present in DJ, electronic music, and sound art cultures, that they have not made significant contributions to these fields to the extent that men have, or that gender categories ultimately pose restrictions on professional survival. So basically, Looking, yes, looking deeper into the gender issue of the music industry today, that's a good thing. But just out of the gate, assuming that women aren't present, that's not great. That That's sort of an image that needs to be corrected.
0: Well, it's notable, too, that when it comes to seeking visibility, as Melissa Fong wrote about over at Ricochet, DJs are essentially gender-neutral. I mean, you can have a gender-neutral DJ name, you're using technology, so, I mean, we should have gender-neutral levels of accessibility as well. So she wonders why more women aren't getting into particularly electronic music production. So... You then ask the question of, is this a problem of participation or visibility, or are women avoiding it or simply not seeking to be described as female? Because as we'll talk about a little bit more in a minute, there are some female DJs who intentionally go by gender neutral or even masculine names cuz they're like I don't want to be called a female DJ don't put me in your ladies night lineup.
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's definitely part of the issue. I mean, um there are a lot of women out there, but in terms of the people who are working on their music in front of an audience, perhaps some women are concealing their identities because they don't want to be defined totally by their gender. Or to face exploitation, harassment, to be treated as different, to be asked, hey, can you DJ in a dress and heels? Or like, what's it like to be a woman? You know, things like that. A lot of women gripe to the Huffington Post, for instance, about the term female DJ. And one of those women, Jack Novak, says, I don't want to be singled out as a woman. I want to be rewarded on my own merit.
0: Yeah, Annie Max similarly wrote a whole thing for Vice. After being enraged at a series of questions that a reporter was asking her, including things like, how were you able to DJ while pregnant? What's it like being a female DJ? Do you experience sexism all the time? Essentially making her gender the focus and not her music. And she said she's sick of being asked about all of these women things. And also when... The uh, reporter finally asked her a relevant question, asked her to recommend some other electronic musicians she's into. She recommended female artists. And the response was, oh, well, are you just supporting women? It's like, no, no. Can we just please make this about the music. Although, Christy Schaefer of Hideous Men is a little bit conflicted
1: on the whole thing. Yeah, because she says on the one hand, women should get recognition for overcoming gender-based restrictions, really in any profession. But she says constantly pointing it out can be othering. Plus, she says, listen, we don't use our genitals to play our synthesizers. But could you? <laughs> that really made me think, because you could. You could, but but I, I think maybe Schaefer
0: doesn't a vulvasizer. Oh Come my on. god, I love that. Come on, I have some ideas about what that could be. But it is—I mean, some do find it problematic, though, when you have the what would that be called? Kind of the the vanity plate DJ, mm-hmm. like when Lindsay Lohan got into DJing there for a minute. That some think only amplifies these stereotypes about women DJs being fake. Or they're just up there to look hot, like they're just they're just pushing play on a playlist. They're not doing the real work. Well, honestly, there are plenty of guy DJs who are just pressing a button. But Caroline, they're real DJs. Come on, <laughs> <laughs> they're not playing any vulvasizers up there.
1: I wish, um, but there are a lot of complaints that people like Lindsay Lohan or Paris Hilton, for instance, who's like, I guess she's out of things to do, so she's decided to pick up. DJing. But yeah, but there are a lot of complaints uh, from people who are working hard at this every day as their profession about people like Lindsay Lohan or people like Paris Hilton who kind of do come in and just press a button to get the publicity to maybe get money out of making a club appearance. Um, and so that one negative aspect ends up reflecting pretty poorly on women who've been hardworking in the industry all along and they end up getting belittled or mocked Especially when it comes to appearance, about, you know, oh, well, you're wearing a dress, so you're just trying to be sexy. Or you're not sexy enough. It's like, as we see in so many different industries, the whole looks thing comes into play all the time, too.
0: Well, and there was that whole kerfuffle over DJ Nina Kravitz, who had a documentary film crew following her around on tour. And at one point, she does an interview both in a bikini, and then at one point she does an interview in a bubble bath, and people are like, whoa, stop being so sexy. We don't like this. And then she said, hey, it's my body. I can do what I want with it. Stop being so sexist. And honestly, it just uh, made me want to go to your Spotify, your Otis Otis Redding Spotify playlist, and uh, have a little Luddite moment.
1: Yeah, it is sort of like... Hey, can we come out of the weeds for a minute? I mean, I I agree to an extent with some of these DJs who are saying, "Can we just stop asking women about being women and then talking about what's sexist or what's feminist and just focus on the work?" Because on the one hand, like, yes, no, I I do want to ask you about being a woman because the average your average music consumer doesn't know that much about electronic music or like what goes into it or the history of it. I mean, so people, it's natural that they're curious about being a woman in, especially like in techno or in, you know, fields of electronic music that are so sort of overrun by that broy sort of just like white guy image. And so, yes, like I would be curious about it. But on the other hand, you do kind of want to encourage people to move past just focusing on gender and saying, Let's let's talk about your music.
0: Well, why don't we move past gender and talk about the queering of music? Cuz this was a an interesting theme to emerge in what we were reading as well. Where you do have some like EDM artists and DJs who are intentionally confronting well, gender identity, yes, and sexuality through music. Yeah, and I mean, it's hardly a
1: stretch to view electronic tools and instruments as a querying of music. This is all the way back to the late 19th, early 20th centuries when people are like, I am so sick of the piano, I want to create spaces in between those notes and tones where I can create something special. Um, and so along those lines, Electronic Beats magazine in 2013 profiled three acts in particular who they said were challenging traditional power structures through this most unlikely of musical forms and were connecting the morphability of sound synthesis with thoughts on the fluidity of gender identity. And so one of the people they talked to was Jam, a.k.a. Janine Rostron, a.k.a. Planning to Rock, who's a gender-neutral artist with tracks that include Patriarchy Over and Out, Misogyny Drop Dead, and the Queer Disco track, Let's Talk About Gender, Baby, which is now the official soundtrack of Sminty, I just decided. But uh, Planning to Rock really plays with their voice. They're not trying to sound like a man necessarily, but instead using their voice as an instrument, just like the rest of the sounds that come into play in their music. And their attitude in this interview is basically like... This is a great time. This is a great time to be a human, let alone an electronic musician playing with gender, because they said change is in the air. You've got more female journalists who are finding their voice. And Planning to goes on to say that they're super excited about issues of intersectionality and gender fluidity, finding their way into more mainstream media. And taking it back a
0: step from today to the origins of where this intersection between gender identity and electronic music was really coming from. Electronic Beats also talked to Terry Thamelitz, a.k.a. DJ Sprinkles, who Fact Magazine described as a deep house idol, queer theorist, media manipulator, and seasoned contrarian, which is a fantastic description. Mm-hmm. Um, and DJ Sprinkles came out as trans in the 80s, which was a period, quote, when disco and dance music were still explicitly hotwired to queer culture and sprinkles feels that house music's queer roots have been cleansed with its mainstreaming so that helps you know connect the dots as to why there might be this renewed interest today in reclaiming those kinds of roots and really playing around with identity as it relates to music and this is something also echoed by the knife a.k.a. Swedish siblings Olaf Drager and Karen Drager-Anderson, who are committed to challenging gender and power norms and applying feminist, queer, and academic theories to real life. Which, who knew that electronic music could be that loaded? But yes, indeed, it is. Yeah, and of course,
1: you know, we, we haven't talked about, we mentioned very briefly how some of the instrumentation that was developed as military, uh, technology, which was then used in early hip hop, we touched on that, but we haven't even had the time to dig into 1980s queer culture, nor have we really had the time to dig into where the women and other people of color are in this conversation and that's something that Zell McCarthy at Vice pointed out in an article in March of 2015 and he really lamented one the lack of women in the dance music industry and two the positioning of women and color women of color as objects to look at rather than as DJs to listen to and he cites people like Diplo whose videos feature the rear ends of many a woman usually women of color. And so from there, he kind of branches off, McCarthy does, into talking about this issue that we see in a lot of industries, that whoever the gatekeeper is to sort of allowing new people to surface, the people they let through a lot of times tend to look like themselves. And so when you have club owners, promoters, or even popular publications they might not be consciously sexist or racist, but if they're promoting their friends or people that they're familiar with, you sort of get that in-group effect where everybody ends up looking like those gatekeepers or those tastemakers. McCarthy even cited a talent buyer who said that one club wouldn't book an act because the women weren't
0: hot enough. And that can be a big deal. Obviously, because if you're not getting booked, then you're not getting the money. And there's so much money, particularly right now, in EDM. And so if those people who look or sound different aren't getting past the gate, then there are fewer opportunities open to them. And yeah, I mean, a lot of this does go back to the money. But McCarthy kind of pulls us back and says, but wait, we can't forget what he says, the essence of what dance music is and should be. Because yeah, okay, it's all about the money. Yes, yes. But remember, dance music as we know it, was originated by black, Latino, and queer artists who wanted to create safe spaces for people disenfranchised by mainstream society. So, I mean, whew, not that way anymore, it seems like, in a lot of ways. I mean, uh, McCarthy also praises the EDM community, like the, the people in the audience, for being very like open and accepting and very fluid with gender and sexuality and all these kinds of things. Um, but on the industry side, it does seem like the more mainstream that you get, the more that door starts to close. So,
1: Kristen, we have now gone from the 19th century through to raves. to raves to today. People who are out there crafting incredible music that serves as a commentary on gender identity. I mean, that's way far removed from the from the dynamophone It was 200 tons. But what's not different and what I love, and I hope I don't sound too cheesy for saying this, is that the common thread of wanting to use this electronic music and technology and sounds to throw off sort of the tyranny of the traditional way that society operates or that music operates or that sound operates, that's the common thing is that whether you're saying I want to challenge the patriarchy or gender norms or whether you're saying I want to challenge the way that sounds are created, it's all coming from this beautiful, like scientific uh, just desire to
0: create and create beautiful differences. Well, I think it's time now to hear from listeners. Do we have any electronic music fans in our audience? Are there any theremin players? I really was just, I am so uh, so enthralled by the theremin right now. Um, let us know all of your thoughts. Any DJs listening? Do you ever confront this kind of stuff? Because really, we touched on so many different So whatever sparked your interest, let us know. MomStuffAtHowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. So I've got a Facebook message here from David. And I wanted to share this because sometimes we hear from fellas who are like, Hey, we never hear from the fellas who write in. So David... You're a fella, and this is what you had to say. David writes, I'm currently listening to your social justice warriors episode, and I thought I'd let you know that I'm super glad I found your podcast recently. I'm a Christian who is white, upper class, cisgender, heterosexual, and male. I love how balanced and neutral you are in your discussions, and I find it very helpful to think about how things are for those who aren't given the same opportunities as I've been. While I don't know if I'll ever be able to remove all of my biases, your podcast definitely helps me remove some of them. So thanks. He says, P.S. I've just graduated as a nurse and would love it if you did an episode on the nursing profession as a whole. Or if you wanted to go a bit more in depth, males in nursing would make for a great episode. And I sent David a link to our nursing podcast because, friends, we have done it. And you can find it over at StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. So thanks, David.
1: Well, I have a Facebook message here from Becca about our sci-fi episode. She says, I got really excited this week on my drive to work when I started listening to your science fiction podcast. As I type, I'm sitting in my pajamas with a cup of coffee watching Battlestar Galactica, researching time travel and making notes on the storytelling and characters for my own sci-fi novel. While I do want a very real science background to what I'm writing, I hadn't even thought about the social impact that a hopefully one day successful sci-fi novel could have. Then I remembered The Time Machine by H.G. Wells that I have only recently just read. A writer friend of mine and I were discussing the fact that it seemed more like a social commentary than science fiction. It reinforced everything you were saying. The point I'm trying to make is that it has influenced how I want to write and the ideas that I want to get across to the reader. Even more than that, I'm 26 weeks pregnant with a little girl whose name will be Aria after Arya Stark, a strong female character, and I want to make my own small change that will make a difference to the world she will grow up in. I'm still working and developing my story and plan to do a lot of writing on maternity leave, but thanks to you, there will be something more that wasn't there before. Again, thanks for all your efforts, and if one day I'm lucky enough to have the story published,
0: I would love to point out your influence. Well, thank you, Becca. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Stepworks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one, so you can read up on the fascinating history of women in electronic music, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com.